0: Understanding, Making
1: Connections.
2: This is WVEWLP, Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. This is Indigo Radio, Deepening, Understanding, Making Connections, on the air every Sunday at noon. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests, not the radio station. My name is Anna Milani. I am a current graduate student at UMass Amherst in public health, and I have been working for over six years at the Women's Freedom Center, the local crisis center here in Brattleboro, working around domestic and sexual violence, and I'm here with my co-host Lauren Pearlstein. She is a local educator and librarian at the Putney Central School. Last week's show, we were talking about the Vermont Eugenics Program and changing the name of the Dorothy Canfield Fisher Book Award. If you missed that show, you can find the link on our Facebook page, Indigo Radio, or on our new podcast. Today, we'll be airing a conversation between myself and my dad, Dr. Charles Milani, that was recorded on a recent trip to Arizona. Dr. Milani has been working at the Maricopa County Jail in Phoenix, Arizona, for the past nine years. The Maricopa County Jail is the sixth largest jail in the country and was home to the controversial Sheriff Joe Arpaio, over the years making national news for the treatment of inmates and calling himself America's toughest sheriff. Sheriff Joe was the head of the jail for 24 years, from 1993 up until November 2016, And that's when he lost a re-election bid to the new sheriff, Paul Penzone. Sheriff Joe was known for making his inmates wear pink underwear for what's called Tent City, an open-air outdoor jail, which is currently being closed. He was known for racially profiling, uh, especially Latino immigrants. He was an avid Trump supporter, and he has faced hundreds of lawsuits over the years pertaining to the running of his jail, which was often supported by a lot of taxpayer money. And just this month, actually, Sheriff Joe was found guilty of criminal contempt for ignoring a judge's order to stop detaining people because he would just suspect them of being undocumented immigrants. He's probably going to be sentenced in the next couple of weeks, I believe. And last week, President Trump told Fox News he is, quote, seriously considering, unquote, issuing a pardon for former Arizona Sheriff Joe Arpaio. There's actually a petition going around online um, to ask Trump not to pardon Arpaio. We can link to that on our Facebook page. And we are going to start this off with a song. Before we get to the interview, we're going to play Johnny Cash, The Man Comes Around, and we will be right back with the interview. Thanks for joining us.
1: And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. up, will you partake of that last offered cup, or disappear into the potter's ground, when the man comes around, hear the trumpets, hear the pipers, 100 million angels singing, multitudes are marching. against the priests. Till Armageddon, no shalom, no shalom. Then the father hen will call his chickens home. The wise men will bow down before the throne. And at his feet, they'll cast their golden crowns. When the man comes around. Just singing Multitudes are marching To the big kettle drum Voices calling Voices crying Some are born and some are dying It's Alpha and Omega's come, And the whirlwind Is in the thorn tree The Virgin are all trimming their wicks. The whirlwind is in the thorn tree. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. It measured a hundredweight and fifty pounds. When the man comes around,
2: That was Johnny Cash with The Man Comes Around, and you are listening to Indigo Radio. This is Anna Milani, I'm here with Lauren. And today we are talking about the Maricopa County Jail in Phoenix, Arizona. We're gonna do the first part of the interview of myself talking to my dad, Dr. Charles Milani. He is a doctor working at the Maricopa County Jail in Phoenix.
1: For Indigo Radio, and I'm here
2: with Dr. Charles Milani, also my dad. He is a doctor working at the Maricopa County Jail in Phoenix, Arizona, and in 1998, our family moved to the United States from Melbourne, Australia, where Dad accepted a position at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He worked there for over 20 years as a cardiothoracic surgeon, and then in 2008, he pseudo-retired, as I like to say, and transitioned to work at the Maricopa County Jail in Phoenix, and he's now been there for over nine years. So Dad, can you tell us what led you to work at the Maricopa County Jail?
3: Well, I think that I just sort of um, got tired of doing cardiac surgery and I was looking for something new. I thought I'd try and work in the third world or perhaps work with Native Americans or do some teaching of medical students, but I had a medical license in Arizona and I found this job at the Maricopa County Jail and uh, I applied. And initially they didn't accept me because I said they didn't want a surgeon, but I told them I just wanted to help out and to examine patients and give some general medical care. And they said they'd keep my name on file, and eventually they uh, asked me to come down for a, a tour and an interview of the jail.
2: Yeah, I like the the story that you were initially rejected. I hadn't heard that story before. I was listening to a, a talk that you gave in Australia just earlier today, and You said that after the tour there, you came out and you told Mum, I had found the third world at my doorstep. What do you mean by that? Well,
3: I just saw all these uh, inmates in the jail. There must have been hundreds of them in the intake area. And they looked so desperate in need need of of care. And many of them actually don't get care on the outside. They don't go to the doctors. They don't... uh, have health plans and uh, they have all sorts of medical problems and it's the sort of thing that I would imagine occurs in the third world and basically I thought well, I found the third world on the doorstep.
2: Right and I know you've said this too before is that it's something that people in this country often don't see and either don't want to know about it or just uh, don't want to see it but that those conditions are also in this country and can you tell us how big the jail is? How many facilities is it?
3: Well, it's a very large jail. It's spread over. It has several campuses, but the total population of the jail when I started was between nine and 10,000 inmates. It's fallen recently. It has about 8,000 inmates. But uh, they're not, not all housed in one facility. There's several facilities. There's 4th Avenue Jail and then in southwest Phoenix... Um, there's some more facilities. There's a female jail and several male jails. There's Buckeye Jail, Towers, and uh, Durango.
2: Okay, and I think that it's the sixth largest in the nation, right? The th- sixth largest jail in the nation. It's
3: yes, about the sixth largest. You know, Los Angeles is the biggest, and there's some other bigger jails. Los Angeles, uh, Cook County in Chicago, Harris County in Houston. Philadelphia, and then Maricopa County.
4: And
2: tell us who's in the jail.
3: Uh, you mean the, the racial makeup or... Uh, yeah. Yeah, most of them are males. I would say about um, 87, 87% of the inmates are male, about 13 or 14% are female. And then um, with regards to, to race, it's really... Uh, slanted towards minorities, uh, there are more um, African-Americans in the jail than than are represented in the general community. So there's a large Afro-American population as well as uh, Hispanic. Um, I think about 47 or 50% of the inmates are white, whereas within the general population, 76% of the population is
2: white. And what about, would you say most of them are coming from a poor background? Most of
3: them come from a, a background of uh, poverty, poor education, and uh, poor health care. Okay. And a lot of them have drug abuse as well.
2: Yeah, so speaking of uh, health problems that you see, what are you mostly seeing with patients in terms of their health?
3: Well, most of them have uh, problems related to drug abuse and alcohol abuse. That's very common. A lot of them are there because of drug charges, but not all of them. Substance abuse is extremely common. And then with regards to other general medical problems, uh, we see problems that you see in the general community. There's a lot of diabetes, a lot of high blood pressure, seizures, uh, seizure disorders are common. We have a disproportionate number of people in the jail who've got HIV or AIDS, that in the general population, Hepatitis C is also very common in the jail.
2: And you worked on the mental health unit for about three years, is that right?
3: Well, initially I worked in the uh, intake area, which is like an emergency room. Mm -hmm. That's where all the inmates come when they're initially booked into the jail. And I worked in the intake area for about uh, three or four years. And then I was asked to go and help out with the general medical care of the patients in the mental health unit.
2: And can you tell us a little bit about what that was like?
3: Well, it was a bit of an eye-opener to see so many people in the jail who've got serious mental illness. Uh, They're difficult, can be difficult inmates to manage because they've got a lot of um, problems. They've got uh, a lot of problems with regards to uh, anger control, They're self-mutilators, they injure themselves, they cut themselves, they bang their heads against the wall, Uh, they refuse to take their medications, but of course they haven't had care on the outside, so when they come into the jail, they're in a state where they desperately need psychiatric care.
2: Yeah, I actually, on my tour there earlier this week, went into the unit that was for women in the mental health unit. And as I was outside in one of the main hallways, which they called the Green Mile, there were three patients or inmates coming through, and one of them was a man that looked a lot older, and he was in a wheelchair, and he had a helmet on his head. And the woman that was taking me around made a comment and said that he had probably been trying to hurt himself in the cell
0: and welcome back. That was part one. Anna, It was it's pretty awesome that you were able to interview your dad and also visit the Maricopa County Jail yourself. In this first part, your dad was describing the mental health unit at Maricopa County Jail, and you also were visiting. And is there anything about your experience there that you would want to add? Sure. Yeah, I had uh, an
2: opportunity to... Spend an entire day at the Maricopa County Jail. I was taken around by a couple different mental health workers, and I saw a number of the facilities, including the women's jail, and I began my day at the 4th Avenue Intake, which is where all the booking comes through, and then there's a men's facility within that building. And I think the biggest thing that stood out to me in that 4th Avenue Intake was that it felt like such a machine. People were Mm. processed and moved into different areas and assessed in different ways depending on what was going on with that person. And the other thing I was told was the day that I was there, it was a relatively quiet day, but on average they have 300 bookings per day, which is quite a lot. And they say on, on certain days, there's people just lying on the floor waiting to be booked through, or the rooms are overflowing, the holding cells are overflowing. At the beginning of the day, another thing that stood out and related to some of the mental health uh, issues that are going on is that they showed me what's called a safe cell, which is a padded room in which they take a person, um, whether that person may be at risk to themselves physically or to another patient, Mm -hmm. or I'm sorry, or um, one of the inmates that have come through. And the protocol for that is that they use six security officers to one person. The person has to take all their clothes off. They're put in this padded room that has nothing, so no toilet, no sink, no water. It is just a grate on the ground. And the other thing is that sometimes they tell the person that they're gonna take them into this room and sometimes they don't, depending on that situation. The other thing I learned too in that intake area is that uh, over the past year there's been a 10 to 14 percent increase in the amount of bookings just in the past year. I learned a lot in my day there and a lot of an impressions that stuck with me.
0: Yeah. Can you also talk about what a jail is and the difference between jails and prisons? Because that line is a little unclear, I think.
2: Yeah, and I, I think that's important to put out there is that being in there, it's very easy to forget that Jails are short-term confinement, mm-hmm. So, for the most part. They're run by the county government and the sheriff, uh, which is a sheriff who is voted into office, and they're, they're used to hold people that are not convicted of a crime, but their case is being worked through the criminal justice system. Now there's other, um, you know, there's other people that may be in there that have been convicted, so people might be waiting to transfer. So that's another exception. And then the other exception is that there are some people that have been convicted, but they might have a short sentence, like one year. And we'll talk about a little bit later when my dad gets into some of the mental health issues is that some people are actually kept in the Maricopa County jail much longer. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of pushback around that. I think though, that what I saw is that even though these are, are short-term holding places and that for the most people have not been convicted of anything. It is immediately punitive mm. because they are mostly in their stripes. They are in these holding cement blocks. And if they're ever transferred to another area, they're cuffed. The other thing I learned too, is that they have just switched the Maricopa County to no visits, in-person uh-huh. visits, except for case managers and legal uh, reps. And that's something that's happening at other jails and prisons. And the person who, the, the mental health worker, was telling me how detrimental that is to people who are no, now no longer having in-person contact.
0: Yeah. And as you kind of describe the safe cell, the grate on the floor, and the dehumanization there right off the bat is yeah um, it's sad. So we're gonna go to a song before we move to part two. This song is called Weighted Down by Skip Spence. Skip Spence was once a member of both Jefferson Airplane and Moby Grape and had a promising career in music cut short following a diagnosis of schizophrenia. In 1968 at the height of his success Spence had a breakdown in New York and was confined to mental wards like Bellevue and the tombs where he wrote songs Weighted Down, the prison song, was written during his stay in those institutions. So here is Weighted Down by Skip Spence.
5: By the possessions Weighted down By the gun Weighted down By the river For you to come My darling, the my action Of when three months I was gone Whose socks were you, darling, darling While well, I've been gone so long Weeding down my position it down
2: Is W V E W, and that was Way Down by Skip Spence. This is Anna, and I'm here with Lauren with Indigo Radio. And we are taking a look inside the Maricopa County Jail today. We are gonna go to part two of our interview with Dr. Milani to talk about mental health issues and the criminalization of people who are experiencing acute mental health uh, issues. I know you know a lot about this. I'd love to hear more about it around mental health services. As we know, there in 1960s, there was a slash in federal funding for mental health services and treatment facilities, which resulted in a lot of people being prematurely released. And I would say still today we don't see enough money um, for mental health services. I definitely see that in Brattleboro. Um, we definitely have a lot of people that are released we have the Retreat, which is an inpatient-outpatient treatment center, and a lot of people end up having to be released and are often just released to the streets because they're, they were homeless before, and that treatment center doesn't have the responsibility to provide housing, so they have to be released. So do you see the consequences of that at the Maricopa County Jail?
3: Well, going back a bit on the history of, of inmates uh, in the jail in the in the 1700s it was common for jails to house mentally ill patients and then in the early 1800s there was a movement that started and there was a lady called Dorothy Dix was one of the one of the instigators of this movement but it was thought that it was inappropriate for the mentally ill to be housed in prisons and jails it was thought inappropriate for the mentally ill to be in the jail and it was inappropriate for the other inmates in the jail to have the mentally ill within the jail with them. So there was this big movement in the 1800s to empty the jails and the prisons of the mentally ill and they constructed a lot of state mental hospitals. So by the early 1900s only about one or two percent of inmates or prisoners within jails and prisons were considered seriously mentally ill. And that lasted until about the 1960s. And then in the 1960s, there was a change in attitude of how to treat mentally ill in state mental hospitals. President Kennedy actually signed a bill provided um, which its aim was to provide outpatient facilities for the mentally ill. And so at around in the 1960s and the 1970s, state mental hospitals started to close and the mentally ill were released from the state mental hospitals with the idea that they would be treated in community medical centres. The other thing that happened was there was the advent of new drugs, antipsychotics, and chlorpromazine was one of the first drugs that was developed and inmates were able to be treated with these new drugs, antipsychotics, so there was another push to move patients out of the state mental hospitals. So state mental hospitals started to close and it was very well intentioned uh, that these people be treated in community health centres but it didn't eventuate. And what happened was that a lot of these people became homeless and uh, they got into trouble with the war and they ended up going to prison and jail. So now we have about 15-20% to 20% of patients that are in the jails or prisons who are seriously mentally ill. It was what was the situation was in the 1700s. So we've come full circle to housing people in, the seriously mentally ill people in the prisons and jails, uh, rather than having them in, in uh, mental hospitals. Now, the mental hospitals weren't the ideal places. A lot of people didn't get good treatment in the state mental hospitals, but nevertheless, they were most probably better than housing them in prison and jails.
2: Yeah, and I know talking to one of the mental health workers there this week, she was telling me that when someone is, say, homeless and then maybe isn't able to get their medication, they're then maybe doing behavior that police will come along and arrest them. So say maybe they're trespassing or maybe they're causing some sort of disturbance. And so they're arrested on something minor and that the police their protocol is not to take them to their clinic, it's to arrest and bring them to the jail, and that the clinics are also really overrun or don't have enough money. Yeah. So it's sort of a, a, a problematic on a couple different levels. And I know, so Maricopa County Jail is well known in, in the States because of Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who, how long did he run that j- county jail for? I
3: don't know, maybe 20 years, but... Let me point out, I never worked for, for uh, Sheriff Joe. The people in the jail who provide mental mental health and who provide medical care to the inmates are not employed by the Sheriff's Department. We're employed by Maricopa County Correctional Health Services. Uh, the Sheriff's Office is a, is a separate department of Maricopa County. Now we have to work with the Sheriff's Department because we're working in their building, but we're independent of them in that we're employed by a different Maricopa County department or agency. Right. So I actually never met Sheriff Joe, he was not my boss, and um, he was very controversial, but um, I never had to, I never interacted with him at all.
2: Well, one of the things I learned was that he, that one of the lawsuits actually, that's what led to contracting to the county health department is that right that you were under and that he so one of the lawsuits was around the treatment or sort of lack thereof of um, detainment of patients with acute mental health issues and one of the women that I went around with said that the the sheriff's office tried to fix that problem but they weren't able to fix it and so that's when they contracted out to get the medical services and she said like you're saying that they're not they don't report to the sheriff's office, but still the policies that that the sheriff's office does impacts the work sometimes. That one of the things that happens is that sometimes patients are not competent to stand trial. These patients with acute mental health issues. And so their cases become at a standstill and they're waiting indefinitely. So rather than going to a psychiatric hospital, they're kept in the jail. Is that something you saw at all? Where yeah, there are patients
3: in the mental health unit who stay there for weeks and months waiting to have um, psychiatric assessment. And they're often appealing their case because of uh, uh, mental illness. And that, that's one of the reasons why patients who are seriously mentally ill tend to stay in the jail longer than other inmates. A, they're trying to get mental health care and mental health assessments... B, um, seriously mentally ill patients are more likely to have facility violations and therefore end up staying longer. So, there, there are multiple reasons why the seriously mentally ill often stay longer in the jail than those who are seriously mentally ill. That's, in fact, there's yeah. lots of data around the country that shows that that's so.
2: Yeah, I didn't think about that too, the fact that, and they call them SMIs, severely mentally ill. I heard that a lot when I was on my visit there, and that they would be more likely to have facility violations. What happens when you have a facility violation?
3: Well the, I, I don't exactly know the protocol that the sheriff office um, um, follows, but you know sometimes uh, they denies certain privileges. they might be might be put in solitary confinement, which is also another big issue, but they might be confined to solitary confinement for a certain period of time, uh, or they might get denied certain privileges for a certain period of time. And then if there's been a very serious charge, then that has to go to the court. For example, if they assaulted uh, a detention officer or a correctional health service uh, worker, then that would be considered an assault, and then they end up going through the court system again. So we see that happen sometimes.
2: And then they call this the administrative segregation, or I, when I was there, I also heard disciplinarian segregation, which is 23 hours in a cell and then one hour out. Do you have any thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, I personally haven't, I didn't see that ha- happening, but there are areas in the jail where people are segregated. You know, for for, for that to happen to seriously mentally ill patients uh, doesn't help their mental illness. It sometimes makes it worse. And I think that there has been a, there was a very um, celebre- public, highly publicised case in New York where a 16-year-old boy was put in solitary confinement for up to three years on Rikers Island. And eventually he kept pleading his Ill- innocence and eventually his charge was dropped. And then he was released. And then soon after his release, he committed suicide. Mm. So there's been a big push to sort of... Um, curb solitary confinement and particularly for the people who are mentally ill.
2: Yeah. And I know you had mentioned too that Maricopa County is the largest psych facility in the state of Arizona. Is that right?
3: Well that's right. The Maricopa County Mental Health Unit, you know, has the capacity for holding up to I think two hundred inmates. I never saw two hundred inmates or patients held in the mental health unit while I was there. Usually we had 100, 120 patients, but um, it turns out that it's the biggest psychiatric facility within the state, and that's where most people who have got serious, mentally, serious mental illness that require inpatient care are housed nowadays. They're in prisons or jails. They're not in state hospitals. Forty years ago in the 1960s, there was something like four or 500,000 inpatient beds for seriously mentally ill patients, now there's only five or six thousand.
2: Mm-hmm. I know in Vermont we we barely there's there's one that has ten beds, which is barely anything, and it's very difficult to get into. There is more than that, but they're they're pretty small and they're also really difficult to get into. And so people who don't have outside support, are, I see a, sort of a trap of chronic homelessness. Maybe spending a few days at the retreat center or some sort of detox place. But it's so especially with people that are also using substances, it's so easy to relapse. And I think that was something that I feel like I heard a lot about when I was at the jail this week is those traps that people are, are sort of caught in, especially around relapsing.
0: And welcome back. This is Indigo Radio on W V E W one oh seven point seven FM. You were just listening to Anna and her dad, Dr. Milani, um, in conversation about uh, the Maricopa County Jail. So Anna, you and your dad were talking about the criminalization of the people struggling with mental health issues and addiction. you have anything to add before we go to part three of the interview? Yeah, it was really
2: eye-opening to me about how jails and prisons are sort of de facto mental health facilities, and that, of course, that is worsening of of the conditions that these people are struggling with. And uh, one of the things I found out, there was a 2015 Arizona Republic investigation, that's a newspaper in that area, that did an investigation into mental health facilities, and they found that there were major inequities in money in Phoenix, especially in minority communities in these mental health facilities. And so what they were seeing was that there were major cuts to services. It made it harder to qualify for low income. Some people waited for months to get in, yet executive compensation and the perks consistently rose. So you had nonprofit executives with six-figure salaries. And one story that I read about was a woman named Misty Kidder, and she had Or she has a a teenage son who has been diagnosed with attention deficit and he also has significant cognitive and developmental impairments and he can become very agitated and violent. There was a lack of mental health services for Misty and long waits and so she was forced to rely on police assistance when he loses control because her daughters are afraid and I think that that is is so sad and unfortunate because what are people supposed to do? Mm -hmm. And so the backup is to call the police. And as what my dad was saying, more and more the police are being used in those sorts of situations. Mm -hmm. So you have someone who may be struggling with acute mental health. There may be co-occurring issues like substance abuse and they're homeless. And they may be doing something out on the street that police deem is criminal. So maybe they're acting, you know, quote, erratic, or maybe they assault someone. Uh, and the police will pick them up and won't take them to the clinic. They're taken to jail. Mm-hmm. Quickly, before we go to part three, I think Vermont's also, I found out, is, is going to be struggling in the years to come because they are losing a federal waiver. They're going to lose about $34 million that it's money that comes from Uh, the federal government, but that is going to be cut. And that money has been used for psychiatric hospitals. And it's going to be losing that money by 2021. And it's also going to affect some substance abuse centers. So that's something that the state hasn't figured out yet what they're going to do to replace that money. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go right to um, part three. And Lauren and I will be back. I would love also for you to talk about what you know of the chain gang in the women's prison. And when I was there, they showed me uh, the area where women can, if they're on this disciplinary segregation, they can either choose to go on the chain gang or they can choose to go into solitary. And so a lot of them choose to go on the chain gang. Uh, But can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: I've seen the chain gang actually working around uh, the community, um, and I'm not sure if it's something that it was instituted by Sheriff Joe or not. But um, there are inmates, both male and females, who go out on a chain gang, uh, who go, you know, working outside in the community, either doing some landscaping or cleaning up the highway. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that they have a chain gang of, of females who go out and do, do Graves for porpoise, as well.
2: So they're they're digging graves for people who are too poor to afford At
3: usual funeral. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. But you you I've seen chain gangs out here in the community in Scottsdale. You know, stop by the road and there's a sheriff's a van and uh, there are a number of people out the out on the side of the road. Uh, cleaning up the the highway uh, and working. So I don't exactly know what sort of work they do, but I think it's basically outside work, cleaning up the highways and so on. Okay. I think if they work on a chain gang, too, they can get some reduction in their sentence. Yeah,
2: I think that's what I was told also. Which, after being inside there, I can understand why people would choose to do that rather than be inside a very small cell with no, no window exactly. for 23 hours a day. So one of the things that I, that I heard a lot when I was there from the women that were taking me around was about how it was a consistent thing that patients that come in or inmates that come in, they receive better care inside the jail and they're talking about medical services, dental services, mental health services, than they probably do outside the jail. What do you think, and I know you're in agreement with that too, and that's something that was an eye-opener to me, seeing that they get very good health care inside there and their medical needs are addressed. What would they need outside to receive the type of care they receive inside the jail?
3: Well, first of all, I think they get excellent care within the jail. Uh, Actually, as an aside, we always call them uh, patients rather than inmates. Mm -hmm. But they do get excellent care in the jail if they need to be... if they First of all, when they come into the jail, they have a, a brief health assessment by a nurse, and then they're given information as to how to ask for medical care. And they can be, they can put in a request to have uh, to, to have medical care at any time. They just need to request it. Their requests are triaged by a nurse, and I think they're seen within 24 hours, and if they need to be seen by... Um, a physician, then the appointment is made for them to be seen in the clinic. Basically, all their needs are taken care of. Uh, their medicines are provided if they need medicines. Tests are provided if they need tests. If they need outside consultations uh, for specialists, then that's provided. We have a number of specialists that come into the jail that will see the patients. For example, we have an orthopedic surgeon that comes into the jail twice a month. We have ophthalmology Uh, We have an obstetrical consultant who comes in. We, in fact, do dialysis in the jail. Uh, We have x-ray in the jail. So all their needs are are attended to. I personally do a a minor surgical clinic at the jail twice a month. Uh, It's better care than they get on the outside. What do they need on the outside? Well, they need need to have a primary care provider on the outside and follow-up, and that's very difficult for them particularly if they're homeless uh, or transient, then it's it's very difficult for them to sort of follow up in the community. And if they're suffering from substance abuse as well, that's another factor which um, makes them not follow up with care.
2: And I would guess extremely vulnerable to relapse because oftentimes you're getting people in there that don't stay very long, right? The, wo- the woman that I was going around with told me that the first 24 hours that they are released are the most crucial hours of having some sort of safety net or a safe place to go um, and determining whether or not they may end up back in the jail again.
3: Yeah, well, recidivism is very common. It's like a revolving door. Actually, for seriously mental ill patients, if they're released from the jail and there's no sort of immediate follow-up, one of the commonest reasons for them to come back to the jail is what's called failure to appear. In other words, they've been given a court date and they don't appear at court, so they get rearrested and they come back into jail.
1: And what would
2: be some reasons someone would fail to appear at court?
3: Well, there'd be lots of reasons. Not caring, abusing substances, not having means of transport to get mm. to the court, mm-hmm. uh, not having any support in the community so they can get to the court... So I think they... So suppose
2: not even having maybe a phone or address? I
3: think there's lots of reasons. If they're us. yes, yeah, another reason.
2: Right. This is on a different note, but I was thinking back about how you said uh, that you don't call them inmates, you call them patients. And I also heard the mental health worker say that to me, in that calling them patients. And I was asking her about, does it feel like an us versus them? And the feel I got was that it was more of an us versus them with the security officers um, and what I'm, I'm guessing the security officers call inmate, inmates. How do you feel about that? In, I mean, even just using the language of patients, and do you feel like in there it is an us versus them, or do you not feel like that?
3: I don't think it's us versus them. We just treat them like patients who need medical care like anyone else. Mm-hmm. And you know, by and large, we don't know what the patient, what the patients are there for. I think 99% of the time, I don't know what the patient has been charged with. Occasionally you may know what the patient's been charged with because you've seen the patient on the television charged with some serious crime. Mm-hmm. But most of the time we don't know what the... Pa- I don't personally know what the patient is, but is there for. Occasionally yeah. we do. But um, that shouldn't influence what, how we administer treatment. Yeah. You know, the, the treatment should be the same whether they're you know, there because they uh, abused a drug or whether they uh, have been accused of uh, murdering someone. And, of course... They're all there. Some patients stay there after they've been sentenced and found guilty, but the majority of patients are there waiting for trial, and we presume they're all innocent anyway.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: until all proved guilty. So
2: right. we treat them
3: as patients just like anyone else in the community.
2: Right. This is Anna. Due to time, we are going to go straight to part four of the interview with my dad, and then Laura and I will wrap up the show with some of our thoughts. What has most surprised you about the work at Maricopa County Jail? How
3: enjoyable she is. <laughs> no, I enjoy working there. I, you know, i would worked as a cardiac surgeon for many years at the Nome clinic and uh, I was a little bit apprehensive as to whether I'd be able to fit into the county jail doing general medical work, but uh, in the end I found it pretty easy.
2: They were probably glad that they found your application and gave it a second shot. What would you say is the most challenging? In your time there. Um,
3: well, I don't, I don't know if there's any sort of great challenges. Occasionally, you might have a difficult patient. One challenging issue is that you're seeing you're very much dependent on the detention officers to get the patient to you to be seen, and uh, you know it can be a bit slow in the clinic because the detention officers for one reason or other can't bring the patient to you or they're slow bringing the patient to you or there are other reasons why the patient can't come either the patients refuse to be seen or the patients at court or they've got what's called the jail on lockdown so that can be somewhat frustrating we tend to also have a, a, a a higher turnover of staff than I'm used to, say, working at the Mayo Clinic, and that can be somewhat frustrating as well. But by and large, yes, staff are very good.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it seems to me that they were, I was told that people either stay there a really long time or there's new people. Um, but there have been people that have been there for a very long time. We have
3: people who have been there for ages. We have a physician there who has been there for at least 20 years and he loves it.
2: Yeah.
4: Uh,
3: so I think, basically, you either love it or you don't like it. And, you know, if you like it, you'll stay. If you don't like it, people tend to go. So we do have a... I think that there are people who just think they're going to like it and don't and believe. And I think that can be a little frustrating at times. But, you know, by and large, our know, staff's
1: very good.
2: We really, in this country, emphasize punishment rather than rehabilitation. How would you define rehabilitation?
3: Well, that's a difficult question, actually. I think getting the inmate or the patient to the stage where um, he doesn't repeat the, he or she doesn't repeat the, the behavior that uh, got him there in the first place and um, you know, a lot of people there are on drug charges or have substance abuse and it's trying to um, modify that behaviour so that they don't end up coming coming there again. I think that that would be my thought about rehabilitation and there, there's certainly some efforts at doing that at the jail. They have programs at, there at the jail for people who've got uh, drug abuse. Um, and sometimes their, their sentence also depends on the judge says that you know you're you're staying there the Maricopa County so long as you you know get enrolled in this particular program. Now that's not available at every one of the facilities, but it's available, I believe, at the Durango Jail and maybe Estrella as well, and maybe at LBJ.
2: Yeah, I think my thoughts on that. And I see it in the Brattleboro community, and the work that I've done with women at the crisis center, is that there's so limited choices for people who are so struggling. And so I've seen a lot of women that have been in a cycle of they've been abused, they maybe have used substances in order to cope with that abuse. They don't have many economic resources. They they may end up homeless. They may get caught on a um, some sort of drug arrest, and then they serve some time in jail and they're released, but sometimes the only place they can go to is back to an abuser, and they get into that cycle. And so I feel like when I think about what else, when we think of the word rehabilitation, it's also looking at our own society and what, where do we put our money and um, what do people need outside in, in supportive ways, I think. You... Uh, and others have also described the U.S. as the the world's jailer. Can you tell our listeners what you mean by that?
3: Well, we incarcerate more people in this country than anywhere else in the world. Uh, the, the United States has an incarceration rate of about 800 in every 100,000 individuals. Um, 25% of the people who are behind bars in the world happen to be in the United States, but only 5% of the population is in the United States. So we have a very large, high incarceration rate. countries that are comparable to us, such as Australia or Great Britain or Canada, they have an incarceration rate which is almost one-fifth of ours. So we have a very large incarceration rate. Mm -hmm. And not only that, we have large numbers of people on parole, or on probation. So, you know, at any one time, there must be seven about 7 million people who are under the control of corrections. It's almost 1 in 40 individuals in this country.
0: Hi, welcome back. This is WVEW, Brattleboro Community Radio, 107.7 FM. You've just been listening to Anna Milani and her dad, Dr. Mulaney, talking um, about Maricopa County Jail. And in this last part, Anna, you uh, were talking about the traps that the mentally ill get in regarding chronic homelessness, um, rehab, which is hard to get, as you explain, and then a relapse because of limited economic resources or abusive relationships. And this is something I see in this community as well and around. You then begin to talk about people's limited choices and how we have to look at our own society and where we put our money and look at what people need. Can you elaborate on this piece a little bit?
2: Yeah, sure. I, I think that we are often caught in this line of thinking that people are making bad choices and that they need to change that behavior. And if we just treat that behavior, so say someone stops stealing or stops using heroin, that they they'll stop that and they won't be caught again. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in fact chances are is that it won't last if we haven't also addressed the social conditions that leads to that behavior and limited choices. So Mm -hmm. I really feel like we need to understand people's choices within the context of the conditions in which they live. So for example, um, I think about a woman who is picked up on a prostitution charge, which there is a lot of that in Maricopa County. Mm -hmm. That woman may be homeless. She's possibly living on the streets or in, say, a motel. She's got no money. She needs to feed both herself and her two kids and has a sick child. She needs to get the medication. She also needs to maybe pay for another night in the motel. So what's she going to do? She could steal. She could go without food and medicine. She could use her body to sell in order to get some money. And two of these options are going to land you in jail if you're caught. And Mm -hmm. so I think we need to think about what would we do in those situations and really humanize uh, this issue. Yeah. And I think um, the question about money, I just want to point out, because I think this is really important to say, is that a lot of us don't realize that a lot of our taxpayer money goes to jails. Mm -hmm. And that funding stream is the same place that you're getting money for. Public schools for social services, for roads, for hospitals, for public hospitals, um, and other sort of essential government functions. Going back to Sheriff Joe Arpaio, over the past 15 years, there has been $200 million from taxpayer money that has gone to his legal costs. Um, In the last eight years, 41 million have gone to the Racial profiling case that we mentioned in the beginning, mm-hmm. and this is money that could go to infrastructure, it could go to clinics, it could go to right. unfunded projects and Sheriff Joe earned one hundred thousand dollars as a sheriff, and he also had two million dollar in dollars in real estate, yet he wasn 't using that money for his legal fees yeah so I know Lauren, I want to give you the last word, but I just want to quickly give a huge thank you to my dad, who is. 71 and still working at the Maricopa County Jail. It was really awesome to interview you. So a shout out to my dad.
0: Yeah, it was, it was so much fun to listen and I learned so much. That one of the, the big things that sticks with me after listening to this interview and is the fact that how ironic it is that people who go to prison often have better health care there than they do on the outside while also being locked up and constantly dehumanized in ways you described as like the safe cell and solitary and so on. And it's, and I just feel like asking the question, like, how do we create a world where people are provided with all the things they need, like food and clothing and shelter while providing an environment that's not punitive? That's a great Um, question and
2: something to push toward. Yeah,
0: We're gonna end the show
2: today on, uh, my dad mentioned the Khalif Broder case in which he was 16 uh, African-American teen when he was arrested in 2010 for allegedly stealing a backpack. His family was unable to make bail. He was put into Rikers with no trial. He spent three years there, a majority of that time in solitude. And he always claimed his innocence. His fa- he was finally released and the charges dropped. Two years after his release, at the age of 22, on June 6, 2015, Khalif committed suicide. We're going to go out with uh, his song. It is called Khalif's Song
0: by Drez J. Thanks so much. <laughs>
4: 16, some view it as life's prime Optimism high, who knows what you might find Khalid Broda, a young man with a bright mind At the wrong place, and damn sure the wrong time Imagine, leaving a party smile on face Reflecting, on good moments that just took place Clueless, didn't even come close to the bait Robbed by the system, three years, no case. We live in a time with many things great, but our feeling for what's right. I debate not to hate. It's a pretty big challenge for me to keep my faith when the whole entire system didn't care for his faith. Smile on the face gone, he's starting to look mad. Facing six grown men years just for a book bag. Felin charges pressed from a kid he never met. No investigation checked, there was zero respect, jail bars press. Nothing but stress. The laws to protect fail. Three laser, neglect bail set. But your family can't reach. Hands begin to shake, legs heavy on the feet. Reap what you sow, but no wrong actions to teach. Mind full of nerves, waiting for somebody to speak. But backs just turn, everybody leaves. Instead of going home, right this way you gon' sleep. Tears in your eyes, and now it's hard to breathe. You told them your story.